Hello and welcome to Bustles and Broadswords. This is a podcast about women with swords throughout history and culture. From A Woman with a Sword, I'm your sword-wielding and storytelling host, Claire Mead. I'm an independent curator, an art historian, and a fencer, trying to fight and fend off the boredom social distancing by researching historical warrior women, of course. Is there any other way? And what has always interested me in this particular topic is the issue of warrior queens and their role. Not warrior queens, that's my role. The warrior queen holds a special status in a range of different cultures, taking on an important role in terms of military strategy and leadership, as well as fighting. The way the warrior queen is discussed, however, often establishes her as an exception. And, in my opinion, that is only one part of the truth. And even then, that part is filled with our favourite historical filling, sexist assumptions, as well as a generous side-serving of Eurocentrism. Sure, many queens within a patriarchal social setting did struggle to establish themselves as leaders and rulers. However, a great many more than we may be familiar with succeeded in doing so. And while some cultures established strict rules to keep powerful, militarised queenship in check, others elevated the status as an inherent part of what made their society great. They did not celebrate their ruling warrior queens as an exception, but as the norm. So today, let's go back all the way to the year 40 before our current era in ancient Sudan and look at warrior queen within a long lineage of warrior queens. One who knew the value of her own military leadership and fighting, as well as the power of symbols. And one who faced off against a military superpower, fending off none other than the Roman Empire. This is Amani Renas, the one-eyed, arrow-firing and head-wielding queen of the Kingdom of Kush. Amani Reynas is a fascinating and complex figure within the fascinating and complex history and legacy of the Kingdom of Kush. This kingdom was located in what nowadays corresponds to the Republic of Sudan, and specifically North Sudan. In my reading, what emerged so strongly, primarily through the work of black historians, curators and educators, is that the Kingdom of Kush and its brilliant legacy has often been either forgotten, dismissed, or overshadowed by the historical achievements of its next-door neighbour, Egypt. Furthermore, systemic institutional racism and colonialism, which pervades history and heritage to this day, have made it so that the histories of a range of African countries, cultures, and entire civilizations have gone vastly unexplored. Amongst them, 
Kush, which boasted highly advanced craftsmanship, art, trading systems, and military power. So, the main thing to understand about Kush is that it has always been a serious contender in terms of power and rule, both clashing with Egypt and, at several points, ruling over it. Their relationship, from what I have read, is truly one of equal rivals, both benefiting during times of peace from shared trade, culture, and even religion, as they would come to share one god, Amun. The Kushites would also adopt Egypt's hieroglyphs while retaining their own language, although they would later switch to their own script. All in all, it is absurd that Kush's achievements have remained obscured compared to ancient Egypt. Absurd, but unfortunately not surprising, given Eurocentric white historians' obsession over and focus on ancient Egypt. To the detriment of its neighbours, who were just as advanced, if not more, when it came to dominion over the Nile Valley. Kush's initial city-state, Kerma, rose to power to control a vast area of this Nile Valley, rivaling Egypt in terms of dominion over it between 2450 and 1450 BCE. For periods until 1070 BCE, Egypt controls most of the region of Nubia. But after the fall of Egypt in the late Bronze Age, Kush became its own kingdom in Napta in what is now modern Sudan. King Kashta of Kush then becomes king of both Upper and Lower Egypt. Their rule in Egypt would be on and off until the 7th century BCE. During this time, while the kings of Kush were on the throne of Egypt, their daughters would be appointed wife of God, of that God that the Egyptians and Kushites shared veneration around, Amun. This was an absolutely crucial position, be filled by a woman, part of the ruling family. In the case of Princess Amenirdis I, occupying the position of wife of God would ensure that authority of the king, her father Kashta, would not be defied in the city of Thebes, the traditional site of power in Egypt. This was far from an empty position, since the wife of God appointed her own successor and would also control economic resources of the Temple of Thebes. They also had their own land and privileges on the same rank as many ruling monarchs. Already a sign of Kushite women in power, extending beyond queenship into other major positions of authority. After being kicked out of power, the Kush kingdom, persistent as heck, moved its capital to Meroe, in modern-day Sudan. The thing is, as we've mentioned, Kush has its own thing going on from the beginning. Complex trade, art and culture, as well as its own language and now script from the Meroe period onwards. Something that, to this day, means that some Kushite records are indecipherable. But what we do know is that the kingdom was not only known for its buildings, advanced pottery and trade, it was also known for its master archers. In fact, it would be nicknamed by its neighbours, the Land of the Bow. Look, I know this is a podcast about women with swords as a general guideline, but did you really think I was going to skip out on the Queen of the Land of the Bow? Both are awesome. And speaking about queens, yes, this is a civilization in which women had more agency within the public and political sphere. So, 
This particular period in the Kingdom of Kush's history is when Amani Renas steps on the scene, reigning from 40 BCE and ready the party. Her full title is Amani Renas, Kore and Kandake. Amani Renas' title is really interesting because Kore in the rough translations of the title I have found means king and Kandake means queen. In this particular context, this means that she would have taken on the functions of both a queen and a ruling monarch. But the rule of thumb when it comes to queenship in Kingdom of Kush is this. Queens could rule alone on the throne or jointly with either their husband or their son. It's worth pointing out that in many accounts, such as the account of the Greek philosopher and writer Strabo, her title Kandake is mistaken for her name. It's also changed to Candace, a very Europeanized version of the original Kushite word, which also makes a guest appearance in the Bible, talking about one of Amanirenas' descendants. Ironically, Candace is associated with the meaning pure and innocent, which aren't quite the terms I leap to when describing a warrior queen. In the case of Amanirenas, she's described as brave and fearless. Refreshingly, not much is known about Amani Renas' husband. And I mean refreshingly, because it's usually one hell of a challenge to dig up anything about historical figure's wife. So having a reversal here shows how things play out in this story. What we do have is his name, Terikitas. And the knowledge that after his death in battle, Amani Renas took over the throne. Throughout accounts of her reign and her battle against Rome, her son, Prince Akinidad, is described as fighting at her side in battle. The challenges she would face as a queen would test and ultimately prove her resilience and worth as a ruler and as a warrior in the war she launched against the Roman Empire itself. Now, due to the fact that we cannot, for now, decipher later Meritic script, much of the accounts we have of this next bit come from historical sources from outside the kingdom of Kush, such as our pal Strabo, who takes it upon himself to recount the war of the kingdom of Kush versus the Roman Empire. So what do we know and how does it start? Funnily enough, was the defeat of a slightly more famous queen from the kingdom next door, Cleopatra. Her story with Antony and their challenge of the central power of Rome before a tragic defeat can be the source of an entire podcast in itself. But to cut it short, after their death and finally winning his war of succession as the first Roman emperor in 30 BCE, Octavian Augustus becomes the main ruler of Rome and is able to establish Roman rule in Egypt. But this isn't about him. The main thing we need to know is that during his rule, he was hell-bent on dramatically expanding the Roman Empire starting with the annexation of Egypt and expanding into more territories on the African and European continents. In an expansion southwards, Kush is right there. And Amani Renas ascending to the throne in 40 BCE is like, oh yeah, I see what you think you're going to get away with, and nope. Well, I'm sure she says something to that effect. As a preemptive strike, Amani Renas and her son Akinidad attack Lower Nubia to reclaim former Kushite land and defeat the Roman forces, while Alias Gallus, the prefect of Egypt, is away. 
No idea what he was doing, but you snooze, you lose. We have a saying in France, it's qui va la chasse perd sa place. If you go hunting, you lose your seat. And he was looking away, Amani Renas struck. So at this stage, Amani Renas doesn't just want to claim back territory. She intentionally seeks to counter Roman expansion and dominance in the region. This conflict was also political and economical, not just a question of land, since Rome wanted Kush to pay tribute. And Amani Renas is like, <laughs> no. Gallus is then replaced by Gaius Petronus, who takes back the territory of Syene that had been reclaimed from Rome. This is when things get intense as Amani Renas strikes back again and shows the Romans who they're dealing with. Not a potential future vassal state that will meekly pay tribute and bow down, but a powerful military contender. Because accounts of Amani Renas make one thing very clear. She would have been a force to be reckoned with. Images and accounts of representations of the Queen's Kush show them heavily adorned with gold, jewellery, head on the hands and coal on the eyes, with Kushite women often wearing an amulet representing fertility on their knee or their calf, with the foxtail being seen as a feminine attribute. Something that stands out a lot in my reading is also that, contrarily to their Egyptian queen neighbours, Kushite queens would not have worn wigs, and are represented, more often than not, with short, natural bobbed hair and tight curls, with some representations of braiding, alongside wearing the royal headdress. Additionally, they were represented as large, taking up space, symbolising their power and affluence, often towering over their tiny enemies. Amani Renas herself has been described as very masculine by Strabo. Editorialising here, but perhaps he was unable to find any other way to express the way she took on warrior roles, seen as traditionally male from his Greek perspective. Let's also bear in mind that Strabo was a friend of Augustus, so anything he says about Amani Renas must be taken with enough pinches of salt to make you think, oh, that's really salty. Evidence of this? The fact that Strabo also seemed to imply that the Kushites were neither good warriors nor strategists when a lot of what we're about to explore begs to differ. What we do know is that Amani Renas, in most records, is described as brave, fearless and as having lost an eye during a battle to a Roman soldier, which Strabo also confirms, which adds to our overall vision of Amani Renas as a ruling queen. She doesn't only lead an army and strategize attack and defense of her land, she fights. And look, the thing is, not engaging in fighting would not make her any less powerful as a military leader and as a queen. In fact, not taking part in military campaigns at all would not make her any less powerful. Something that does get my goat in explorations of historical queenship and powerful womanhood is the very, very wrong assumption that women in power could not demonstrate it in ways other than fighting and being on the battlefield. You don't have to be a badass warrior queen to enact power via cultural, economic and diplomatic means. And you don't have to give a woman a sword to prove that she's a badass. This being said, Amani Renas would very much have been not only leading armies into battle, but wielding her own weapons. 
A depiction of her on a temple at Meroe shows her wielding a bow and arrows, as well as having a spear in one hand and holding chained together captive Romans in another, as she may have had the opportunity to do so when she successfully launched a strike against a number of Roman-occupied cities, capturing a number of Romans in the process. But she doesn't stop there. Because when you want to attack a culture where it hurts the most, you go for the way in which they have elevated their leaders through art and statues. And the Manirenas knows about the symbolic power. She orders statues of the Emperor Augustus to be defaced. Because the only thing more constant than public statues of powerful historical figures are their tearing down. It's happened in the past and it's happening now. With, amongst other recent major events in 2020, the tearing down of the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol, cast from the docks into the sea in the midst of Black Lives Matter protests. The traces of its defacing carry much more symbolic impact and historical significance than if it had continued to stand there, unmoved, in spite of year-long demands for it to be taken down from Bristol's black citizens. Some might ask what this has to do with anything, that this is completely different, the collective power of the people versus the backlash of a queen against imperial invasion. Obviously it is, the context is not the same. But, in many ways, these historical themes merge and align. The fact is that challenging who gets to be raised up in public space, in times of peace and in times of conflict, is a natural part of history, part of its unmovable, unstoppable wave. The destruction of statues of public figures of authority doesn't mark the erasure of their narrative from history, but the way history moves and shifts and rewrites itself in a constant cycle. In fact, far more people beyond Bristol and the UK now know about Colston and is profiting off the slave trade now that the statue has been taken down than they ever did when it was up and a fixture was in the town's landscape. Here, the destruction of Augustus's likeness hardly negatively impacted his own impact on history. In the same way, it's likely that one statue in particular which Amani Renas defaced would have hardly been remembered as anything other than one figment of authority amongst many, many others. But in destroying it, she claimed it for herself. And she did so symbolically in the way in which capital punishment is enacted on real bodies. Decapitation. Yes, Amani Renas now had Augustus's head, symbolically, if not literally. And we cannot know what it would have felt like to hold up the bronze head of a would-be invader. But we can maybe imagine that Amani Renas held it up high and claimed her victory. She would prevail. And if Rome stood in her way, it would perish. And this is already a big screw you to Rome, to its empire and to its emperor. The taunting of a queen from a far smaller but powerful and highly advanced kingdom standing its ground. But what happens next is an even bigger screw you in so many ways. Because the head, according to Strabo, is buried under the steps of a Kushite temple devoted to victory. Why under? 
as no one could enter or leave the temple without having the head of the Roman Emperor quite literally under their feet. It is believed that this very same head was found in 1910 during an archaeological excavation at the site of Meroe in Sudan. The official line concerning it is that it was donated to the British Museum by the Sudan Excavation Committee with the support of the National Art Collections Fund in 1911. We need to remember that at the time Sudan would have been colonized under Anglo-Egyptian rule. Colonial violence and looting is inherently attached to these objects and their stories. Pretending otherwise is not only doing these objects and their histories a disservice, it lets down a museum's audience. The symbolic and cultural power of the head persists today as it has become a major artifact from the Roman period, and seeing it gives you an idea of how impactful it would have been for many reigners to deface it. The head is larger than life, inflating the emperor's power and importance, but it is otherwise meant to be a faithful, realistic portrayal. The green, oxidized, tarnished bronze would have been gleaming at the time. Tiny glass pupils and calcite irises in metal rings form the eyes, which disturbingly stare out at you, as though they know exactly what's happened. And, as if to accentuate that, the neck is slightly twisted and the mouth curved down. Both stylistic details that correspond to the art style at the time, but which point quite accurately at the head's fate. And before we close this aside on the head and head back to our main plot, one last question lingers. How can we use this Roman head to talk not about Roman power and imperialism, but about fleeting defeat in the face of civilizations who deserve more time in the historical spotlight. But let's look ahead. <laughs> Sorry, last one, I promise. So, what happened afterwards? Well, the Romans, as you can imagine, were pissed off. I mean, they were already pissed off by the cities being taken over. The head must have just been an added bonus. In their counterattack, they took back these cities and invaded Kusha's former capital city. The Kushites suffered defeat. But this did not stop Amanirenas, despite the losses she suffered, both on the battlefield and those that were personal to her. Because one of her eyes was not the only loss she suffered in battle, she also lost her son. Two years go by. The Queen assembles a massive force to take on the Romans head-on. You have to imagine, yet again, a powerful but relatively small country fighting to resist being annexed into a vassal state, 
facing off against what would have been a vast empire, intent on spreading even further into the African continent. Many would call this an impossible endeavour. In fact, some theories based on accounts of the time even argue that the Kingdom of Kush's taking on of the Roman Empire was a misunderstanding, not understanding what they were really up against. However, we need to remember that we do not have Kush's side of the story on that one. And furthermore, I think this is doing them a major disservice. Of course, it's entirely possible. However, if their history with Egypt showed anything, it's that Kush and its rulers weren't just ready to defend their territory, but always ready to attack. Ultimately, this final battle did not happen. But this is where Amadi Renis's strategy and resilience combined with disadvantages on the Roman side. They were not able to adapt to Nubia's environment and were suffering heavy losses and heavy economical costs. The Romans withdrew. They would not continue their conquest southwards. Peace negotiations began. Ultimately, the treaty signed in 21 BCE, seven years after the war began, ensured three things for Kush. One, the Romans would give up occupied territory in the region. Two, Kush would remain independent. Three, Amani Renas would not pay tribute to Rome. This is huge in itself when you remember Rome's power at the time. It obviously shows Amani Renas as a major force to be reckoned with, and that if the Roman played with fire, they would get burnt. And according to legend, the Romans may have had one last taste of what would happen if peace negotiations went badly. Pushite envoys presented Roman diplomats with a lavish gift from Amani Renas. A bundle of golden arrows. With a message that accompanied them. And this is not a friendly gift basket message. This is not a message of surrender. This is a threat of continued warfare. And, like the head of the emperor at the queen's feet, it is an absolute power move. This is what it says. This message is from the Kandaki. If you want peace, this is a token of her warmth and friendship. If you want war, keep the arrows, because you're going to need them. Amani Renas would rule another decade before her death around 10 BCE. She would be followed by many other Kandake, including two others who faced their own wars. Amana Shahito made her predecessor proud, both by fending off another attempted Roman invasion and negotiating peace with Rome, creating a flourishing trade relationship. Sadly, Another pattern of colonial plundering emerges, as her tomb was ransacked by Italian archaeologists in the 19th century. Another queen 
Amanitore, would be mentioned in the Bible as a great ruling queen, and known for her great construction works. And one last detail cements her status as a true warrior queen and descendant of Amanirenas. It shows Amanitore on the pylons of the Temple of Apedimac at Naka, wielding not one sword, but two. And it shows her not only wielding them against her enemies, but also feeding prisoners to her pet lion, as you do. Serving as a warning that outlives the kingdom that slowly faded out of existence. You don't mess with the Queens of Kush. Time for sources and recommended reading. To find out more about the Kingdom of Kush, I greatly recommend the BBC News Africa episode Kingdom of Kush, History of Africa with Zainab Badawi on YouTube, as well as The Greatest African Queen the World Forgot, Queen Amani Reynas by Home Team History. The first, while briefly mentioning Amani Reynas, does an excellent job of focusing on what made Kush a cultural and military powerhouse of its time. It is hosted by Sudanese-British television and radio journalist Zainab Badawi, with great contributions by archaeologist and historian Dr. Abdul Rahman Ali, the director of the Sudan National Museum, and Sudanese archaeologist Dr. Shadia Taha, teaching at Cambridge University Trinity College. I have found the Kingdom of Kush, Handbook of the Naptan Meritic Civilization by Zlazlo Torok, as well as the article Queenship in Kush, Status, Role and Ideology of Royal Women by Angelica Loasa, very useful. I'd also recommend Nubian Pharaohs and Meritic Kings, The Kingdom of Kush by Nasir Desiree Harkless. I have talked about the tearing down of the Colston statue in Bristol, part of Black Lives Matter. A lot has been said by black activists on the power of this act. As a starting point, I would recommend the poem Hollow by Bristol's resident poet Vanessa Kisule, as well as her essay for NME, Edward Colston Does Not Represent Us, because black lives matter, which is why I think it's important to not just represent black historical figures throughout history, but to think critically about the world in which their legacies have been erased and downplayed by systemic white supremacy and colonialism within history, museums and heritage. To me, this is not an optional add-on to the histories of women with swords. It is a full part of the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Researched, narrated and produced by me, Claire Mead. The music is Captivated by Her by Cody Martin. You can find all episodes of Bustles and Broadswords anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at BustleSwordPod to never miss an update, or you can follow me at Carmen Claire for general information and rambling on women with swords and LGBTQ histories. You can also support me on Patreon to help support the free content on feminist queer sword histories I put out there and get some fun bonus content in exchange. Stay safe and stay strong, sword lady lovers, and see you in a future episode.
But this isn't about him. We're not here to talk about Augustus. 